Chapter 1. Winds of Fate In front of the soon-to-be conflagration stood a huge battery of floodlights on tall platforms, and seven cameras, with three men to each machine, were positioned and trained upon the set. In the center of this assemblage, the assistant director's microphone was positioned. The assistant director was a tall, sturdily built, auburn-haired man of thirty-five with hazel eyes and a ruddy complexion. He presided over everything, wearing his inevitable hat, the master of ceremonies. His voice boomed above the throng of spectators, performers, grips, soundmen, electricians, cameramen, and every other technician known to the industry as he fine-tuned the preparations for this once-in-a-lifetime shot. He was a man at the peak of his profession. Eric Glynn Stacy was born in Ramsgate, Kent, England, on December 4, 1903. After attending private schools in England, he graduated high school in July 1921 and promptly went to work for Artistic Films Limited at 93 Wardour Street, London. He worked his way up to second assistant director on a series of features based on the works of W. W. Jacobs, for example, The Monkey's Paw and other short stories. He made his first visit to the United States in 1923 and then returned to England on the SS Majestic. Anxious to return to America and its budding motion picture activities, he continued with artistic films, working on two-reelers for the next two years before becoming assistant manager at the Regent Theatre in Brighton with its 4,000 seats, three restaurants, dance hall, and stage show. In December 1925, Eric sailed back to New York on the SS Barangaria, and within months, the hard-working young man went from chief usher at the Rialto Theater on Broadway to the New York production department of Famous Players Lasky Corporation. Shortly after, the Lasky Corporation merged with Paramount Pictures Corporation, and Eric moved out to the West Coast. He worked in Paramount's property department until he met up with David O. Selznick, an Anglophile, who hired him for his company. In 1935, Eric received an Oscar nomination from the Academy of Motion Picture Arts and Sciences for his work as an assistant director on Les Miserables for 20th Century. The following year, he was honored with another bid from the Academy for The Garden of Allah, a Selznick production, and again in the same category in 1937 for Selznick on A Star is Born. He worked for Selznick from January 1936 until July 1940, when the company suspended operations. David O. Selznick expressed best what Eric had meant to him in a letter written at the time of their professional parting. On December 10, 1938, Eric, a hair less than six feet at 190 pounds, stood tensely awaiting the order to begin the greatest challenge of his career, the filming of the burning of the military supplies in Atlanta. The conflagration, technically known as a controlled fire, was to be overseen by a platoon of visiting firemen who were ready to move if the occasion warranted. Just before the torches were to be applied, Selznick appeared. He had requested an observation platform be built for his guests. His widowed mother, Florence, was there, wrapped in a shawl, but his brother Myron was delayed at a dinner party. Selznick waited for more than an hour until he could wait no longer. Now Eric could proceed without delay. Selznick pushed one of the buttons on the keyboard-like console, which could regulate the flames in various parts of the Holocaust. Seven Technicolor cameras were used to film the fires, duplicating the actual scene of 75 years ago.
Flames leaped 500 feet into the night sky. Ten pieces of equipment from the L.A. Fire Department, 25 policemen, 50 studio firemen, and 200 studio helpers stood by. On Eric's order, fires, carefully set by the special effects men, burst into life and quickly spread gobbling up the tinderbox structures like they were cardboard. Three 5,000-gallon water tanks were used to douse the flames after the shooting wrapped. Uninvited spectators got past the guards and stood mesmerized by the fire, waiting for the action to begin. The crowd of extras waited nearby, biting into their red apples left over from supper. At last the flames were just right, and Eric Stacy gave the cue— Never before had such a massive fire been staged in Hollywood. The glow of the leaping flames reflected from the low-hanging clouds that night. Citizens of Los Angeles and surrounding Hollywood seeing the fire got into their cars and drove toward the blaze. On another night, explosions from the shells and ammunition sounded nervous Culver City residents to call the police department. No, they were told, an enemy fleet was not bombarding Long Beach. However, the fire on Selznick eyes that night had as much to do with an unexpected visitor, so he believed, from London as the blazing sets. Olivia de Havilland, the last living woman of Gone with the Wind at age 94, recalled that night. I had not even been cast yet as Melanie Hamilton. I lived in the Los Feliz district, and one night I was lying in bed, and I saw the night sky light up in this terrible conflagration. She later learned that Eric Stacy's production crew had set fire to the old King Kong set to recreate the burning of Atlanta.